Aleppo uh, and the politics of death and what happened in Aleppo in the past uh, several years. And I wanted to show you maps and um, different aspects of, of um, the, uh, the urban space and uh, spaces in Aleppo. So what I'm trying to do is uh, try to understand the politics of violence and the politics of death through, through space and how the Syrian regime um, utilized spatial uh, technologies and spatial um, techniques to undermine what was happening in Aleppo, undermine the revolution in Aleppo. Um, so, um, since this is not working, I will take back my computer. Um, just, uh, it doesn't, I don't have, yeah. Um, just a quick reminder, um, the Syrian um, experienced a uh, a brief period of democracy back in the 1950s. There were political parties and there were elections and there were newspapers and um, the, the, there, were, there was uh, a congress and uh, political parties were competing for uh, political power. And that lasted for at least uh, seven, eight years, uh, a, a very productive period, politically speaking. And the Ba'ath Party uh, took power through a military coup in 1963. Um, and it had to deal with that challenge, the challenge of how do you undo that democratic culture and that democratic, those democratic practices uh, that uh, the Syrians have experienced for quite some time after their uh, decolonization and uh, rightness of, of the French. Um, so the Syrian regime implemented a number of strategies to, to do that. Uh, first of all, there were a number of coups. Uh, Syria is known to be, I think, um, uh, the, the country where uh, there was a, a record number of military coups. Uh, people don't necessarily agree on the number, but it's something, somewhere between 13 and 19 coups since independence until the, uh, Assad uh, took power in 1970. So Assad had to deal with, on the one hand, the military, and on the other, uh, the people who were uh, used to democracy and, uh, and uh, he had to undo that culture. Um, and so he implemented what is known in Syria as uh, the kingdom of silence, um, how to uh, impose uh, a level of violence that uh, would scare people and prevent them from speaking. So th that's uh, number one. Number two, um, I think it's very important to understand uh, the Syrian regime uh, violence on the long term. It didn't start in, 19, uh, in 2011. It has a long, long history that started way uh, before that. Uh, and there are peaks and there are important moments of, of that violence. For example, in 1980, uh, when Aleppo was uh, besieged and uh, there were massacres. And then in 1982, when Hama was besieged and 20 to 30,000 people were killed. And I will just tell you an anecdote uh, to give you that, uh, an idea of the scale of violence and how the Syrian regime was dealing with the Syrian population. There was uh, a pocket of uh, still resistance in, Alep in uh, Hama after the massacres, after the Syrian regime killed many, many people. And so this dispatched uh, a brigade to, uh, to quell that uh, rebellion or mini rebellion. And so they were told to go to the hospital and um, erase that neighborhood because they were still uh, resisting. And so the soldier went there and they destroyed the entire neighborhood and they went back to their officers and they said there was not that much resistance. Um, and then they discovered that they went to the wrong hospital, to the wrong neighborhood. Um, so 
I had a few pictures I wanted to show you about the Syrian revolution and uh, you know one of the things that unfortunately happened with the Syrian revolution is it has been reduced to violence and violence on both sides and chaos and irrational war and irrational violence. Um, just a reminder that uh, the reason why there was so much violence in, in Syria is because there was a lot of resistance. And I think that the Syrian revolution is the most radical revolution in that world. And this is why there was so much violence deployed against that revolution. And it wasn't just the Syrian regime, it was all sorts of actors who were present uh, in, in Syria, whether international, local, regional, uh, but obviously the Syrian regime was uh, behind uh, the, the, the major part of, of that violence. And so the Syrians were really creative because we're thinking about a space where you know, there was no political spaces and people had to create those political spaces and be creative in, in, the, in, in the way they, they did it. Um, Again, I had a few pictures, but just uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to show you is, um, since people couldn't distribute flyers in the beginning, um, you couldn't uh, congregate, if three people were walking uh, in the streets in Damascus early on in 2011, they were arrested and put in jail. So one of the things that activists did was write slogans on ping pong balls and go to you know, a, a, a hilltop and, uh, and uh, throw those uh, balls everywhere uh, so that people know that there, are, um, there is uh, a rebellion, uh, an ongoing rebellion. They also put um, the red color in, in fountains, again, to remind people that people are getting killed, uh, even if you know, uh, Damascus or Aleppo are not uh, really uh, moving. And um, plus, the students were part, taking part in, in the rebellion. And another important aspect is that many of the leaders of the revolution, the older generation, had spent many, many years in prison. Those are people who spent 15 to 20 years oftentimes. Um, so again, this is another reminder of uh, the on ongoing uh, violence of the Syrian regime. So now I want to zoom in and go into Aleppo and uh, explain the technologies of violence, the technologies of death that the Syrian regime deployed. And there were many. Uh, and um, this is how the Syrian regime was able to really um, quell the, the rebellion in, in Syria. In the beginning, there were those uh, moving um, thugs patrolling the city. Um, to they, they would go to a certain neighborhood and um, and arrest activists and um, and uh, put them in prison and torture them and, and so on. Um, when that was not possible anymore, and the Syrian were uh, or Aleppin were uh, liberating some some neighborhood, uh, the Syrian regime started bombing those neighborhood. And you know, I wanted to show you also a map of the bombing. You see where um, the liberated areas are uh, according to to the bombs. In the beginning, those liberated areas were actually inhabited by people who came from the uh, from the countryside, from the rural areas. And that's you know, there are clusters of uh, neighborhood where you have uh, people coming from different parts of uh, the rural areas. And the rural areas were already liberated, they were already in rebellion, and so the connection of people coming, going and coming back from uh, those rural areas and seeing the demonstration and seeing the power of what was going on, uh, they replicated that in those neighborhoods in, in Aleppo. And those were the first neighborhoods that were liberated. Remember I said that in 1980, uh, Aleppo was uh, besieged and completely, or part of Aleppo was, was destroyed. So the Syrian regime was aware of the urban space and how you know the demographics of the urban space and ha had the time to get prepared. And so you see all these uh, military you know uh, facilities around Aleppo and around the troublesome neighborhood. 
Um, and but one interesting map uh, you could look at is um, the you know the western part and the eastern part of Aleppo, and you can go back in history until the Ottoman era, uh, where the poor uh, were inhabiting the eastern part. There is a long, long history, and the Bedouin would come from those neighborhoods, uh, from, from the countryside and from uh, the desert, to bring uh, different commodities and sell them. And so they couldn't afford to live in the wealthy part. They lived in the, uh, in the poor part. And so that is still uh, the, the case today. Uh, the eastern part is the poor, um, the, the western part of Aleppo is the poor area. This is where you see all the shanty town, all the informal housing. And it's very easy to draw a map. Um, and people were confused in the beginning. Why, how is the conflict you know, uh, taking place and why certain areas are liberated and others are not and, and so on. Um, and so the Syrian regime weaponized the demography of, of uh, Aleppo. Uh, it put the rich against the poor. It put the Sunni and against the Christian and, uh, and the Alawite, the Kurds against the Arabs, um, the shanty towns against uh, the, the wealthy neighborhood. And it was able to do so uh, because of um, the, um, the, you know, the violence that the city experienced and, and the level of, of fear that was uh, in, in people's imagination and, and culture. Uh, but also, um, this is um, a saying, the silence of slippers is more dangerous than the sound of military boots. Um, people were silent, and they were willing to accept what was going on, and they were willing to accept that uh, um, demilitarization and the weaponization of, of demography. Um, the second tactics uh, the Syrian regime used is vertical power. Uh, it had absolute control over the sky, and again, you can see how the you know, uh, the Syrian regime used that uh, tremendously. The opposition had no access to that. And if you look at the map of the destruction of Aleppo, I'll try to, to show you this. Um, I think you might be able to, choose, uh, to see some of it. Um, this is a map of the destruction of Aleppo. Um, the rest of my presentation is there. Uh, but I mean, you can see it's very easy to tell which part uh, of Aleppo are uh, the, the Syrian regime and which part are um, the opposition. There is a complete contrast between the two. Um, were you able to see it or not really? Yeah. So the, the yellow and the, the red is uh, the destruction. So the yellow is less destruction, red is um, very uh, completely destroyed neighborhoods. And the other parts, those that are not destroyed are the um, uh, regime neighborhoods. Um, so again, I mean, the Syrian regime used that vertical power um, and had complete uh, control over the, um, the, the sky. Weaponization of the medical field, the Syrian regime targeted hospitals and uh, health workers. Uh, when uh, Aleppo was besieged in, uh, in 2016, uh, every 17 hours uh, a hospital was, tar was targeted, and every 63 hours a health worker was murdered. And so again, you can see how um, some of my work is about the politics of life and the politics of, of death, how the Syrian regime really weaponized all these symbols of life and utilized them to kill people. Um, and so uh, the, the medical uh, field and, uh, was completely uh, weaponized and it was used to, um, uh, to undermine the Syrian revolution. Uh, again, part of that vertical violence are the snipers, um, and uh, the snipers had a, a different challenge every day. Um, so one day they would target um, the um, um, young boys. Uh, another day they would target uh, pregnant, pregnant women. One bullet, 
two, two kills, um, and so on and so forth. So they had those challenges every day, and they were uh, put in a very strategic way in different places. But one of the things that I, um, I noticed is uh, how, obviously, again, the Syrian regime had complete monopoly over the high places in, in, in Aleppo uh, because it had, you know, the, 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 uh, it had monopoly over the sky. So the opposition really couldn't put any snipers on, on the top of those buildings. But if you look at those buildings, they were the Aleppo uh, citadel, um, you know, from the uh, Islamic period. And then you have the uh, official building, uh, the city hall, which is a very tall building. And then you have the luxury hotels. So if you look at them, you have the historically uh, inherited power, the Citadel and Al-Rahman uh, Mosque. You had the bureaucratic power, the tall official buildings. And you had the neoliberal power, the luxurious hotels. And they were all utilized uh, by the snipers um, in a very uh, strategic way to, you know, uh, uh, to impose a matrix of power over the, the city. Uh, the Syrian regime also weaponized the topography of Aleppo. Uh, one of the uh, famous stories is uh, how the Syrian regime killed uh, 150, um, and there were random people, some of them were activists, but others were stopped at checkpoints and they were not really activists. Um, they were just daily workers trying to cross the checkpoint from uh, Eastern Aleppo to Western Aleppo to go to work and they were trapped um, by the checkpoint. And so they were killed in a park and they were put in the Qa'iq uh, River and, um, and the Qa'iq River starts in the Syrian regime uh, areas and Part of it ends in uh, the opposition areas, and so the bodies were sent through the river to the opposition. And so, and then the hilltops were also used. There is a hilltop that was used in the beginning uh, to um, to uh, shoot at the uh, Kurdish neighborhood. So again, you can see how the Syrian regime weaponized the topography of, of Aleppo, uh, the parks, the rivers, um, the hilltops, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the checkpoints were also a very uh, important uh, weapon in the hand of the Syrian regime, but also part of the opposition, Al-Nusra had checkpoints and other Islamic uh, groups had checkpoints within. And so here you can see how the, the power was deployed around Aleppo, uh, the, the liberated Aleppo, but also from within. Um, and uh, it fragmented all these areas and made it much more, more difficult to, um, to resist the, the regime. And there was also the famous checkpoint, the death checkpoint, where people had literally to run uh, to, you know, because they were risking their lives and uh, to, to cross the, the... And when uh, Eastern Aleppo or Western Aleppo was surrounded, Western Aleppo is the liberated opposition uh, areas. When it was besieged, um, people would pay uh, young boys to cross the checkpoint to get one or two kilos of tomato and cucumbers and what have you to bring them back. And though they were paid high fees uh, to do that, um, to go back and forth uh, and get you know, whatever commodities you needed. Uh, so against all that, um, the Syrian uh, people were able to resist. And despite that level of violence, people were able to resist. And I think this is really important to, to remember. Um, that um, you know, the Syrian people were able to you know, be creative and, and so on. So it's true that the Syrian regime had total and absolute power over the vertical um, or the, the sky, or, uh, but the Syrian opposition had almost absolute uh, power over um, um, resistance from below or below the bottom, meaning the tunnels that they dig um, beneath uh, Aleppo. 
to use for military purposes, but also for uh, to save lives. And so they had, uh, thank you, they had uh, tunnels for um, refugees um, and whenever there were uh, strikes and, and so on. And there was an entire life that was created beneath the ground. Um, people uh, created clinics, um, hospitals, uh, playgrounds, um, cine clubs, um, and all sorts of, and so there are all these uh, different uh, pictures that can, you can see that are very, um, almost binary. You see death and ruins and uh, destruction on the top, and then you go down a few meters, and there is an entire life people are living. Uh, and they're opposing the, the politics of death with the politics of life. And finally, I wanted to end my presentation with uh, this very uh, powerful picture. Again, I wish uh, you, know, you could see it on, on a big screen. But it's uh, kids using a bomb uh, crater, and they turned it into a swimming pool. And again, uh, the power of um, you know, the political of life against the politics of, of death in Aleppo. Thank you. An attack on Iran. In turn, Iranian government leaders have boasted about their new weapons and have warned that from now on, Iran will also designate the US troops as terrorists and will engage in revenge attacks. Even if no direct military confrontation between the US and Iran comes about, the proxy wars between Iran, Israel, and Saudi Arabia will most likely intensify. In today's presentation, I would like to argue that for those socialists and Marxists who are opposed both to US imperialism and to the Iranian regime, there are genuine progressive and revolutionary forces and voices inside Iran that we can support and express solidarity with. At the same time, expressing solidarity with these forces requires a deeper analysis of complexities on the part of socialists and a serious effort to offer a genuine alternative to capitalism, both in its private and in its state form. So first, let's take a look at the current objective situation in, Europe, in Iran. In December 2017 and January 2018, there were mass protests throughout the country that had a working class character, called for the overthrow of the Islamic Republic and an end to its military intervention. demonstrations were repressed by the Iranian army, they continued in the form of multiple and continuous labor strikes, sit-ins, student gatherings, women's actions against the compulsory hijab, teacher strikes, protests of the retirees and families of political prisoners, demonstrations against discrimination against Arabs in Khuzestan, and a brief general strike in Kurdistan against the execution of Kurdish political prisoners. After the Trump administration announced its decision to withdraw from the 2015 nuclear agreement with Iran and reimpose strict economic sanctions, the Iranian economy, which was already in a major crisis, nosedived. The value of the real, uh, the toman, declined by 300 percent. Uh, the uh, wage, uh, official minimum wage for family of, of four has declined to $100 a month. And uh, the Iranian masses are experiencing a level of poverty that they didn't even experience during the Iran-Iraq war. In addition, during
during the past two weeks, Iranians have been hit with yet another massive blow in the form of floods throughout the country. These floods have been uh, caused not only by climate change, but years of government-sponsored deforestation, numerous government-built construction projects in flood-prone areas near rivers, coasts, and government dam building for generating electricity. Most of Iran's provinces have been damaged by these floods. Much of the agricultural food source has been ruined. Drinking water has been polluted. Several hundred thousand people, especially in the southern province of Khuzestan, have been made homeless. The class struggle is now manifesting itself in the form of confrontations between farmers and other locals who are trying to build flood barriers to save agricultural land or homes. And Islamic Revolutionary Guard forces, police, and other security forces that are destroying those flood barriers and redirecting the floods toward agricultural and residential areas in order to protect oil and gas projects. The consequences of the floods, the lack of aid or meager aid from the government, and the severe U.S. sanctions, which have blocked food and medicine from reaching millions of people in dire need, have made the current situation catastrophic. On the one hand, there is a potential for a full-blown class war. On the other hand, both the Iranian government and the U.S. government and other reactionary governments and forces in the region are trying to crush any possibility for a revolutionary direction. What can Iranian and international socialists do to reach out to the suffering Iranian masses and to help those forces on the ground that could move the protest in a revolutionary direction? I would argue that we need to address this issue in three ways. One, who are the progressive and revolutionary forces? Two, what are the complexities that need to be recognized and analyzed? Three, what kind of solidarity is needed from socialists? So, number one, who are the progressive and revolutionary forces? Currently, the most progressive labor leaders in Iran are either in prison or out on bail and facing the imminent threat of being put back in prison for charges of sedition. Among them are Ismail Bakhshi, the leader of the Haftape sugarcane workers in the province of Khuzestan, uh, and Reza Shahabi of the Tehran Bus Workers Union, who's, uh, 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 who was released but could at any moment be, be arrested. Parvine Mohammadi, a woman worker and feminist who was also recently released but could be rearrested. Uh, Jafar Azim Zadeh of the Free Union of Workers of Iran. In January, Ismail Bakhshi and Sefidi Golian, a young woman reporter and labor activist, were forced to give a televised confession in which they said they were instigated by Marxists and socialists. After being released from prison, both Bakhshi and Golian denounced these forces, forced confessions and publicly spoke about being tortured. Since then, they have been re-imprisoned and often not heard from. Other labor leaders, such as the leaders of the Iranian Teachers Union, Ismail Abdi, Mohammad Habibi, Mahmoud Beheshti Langudi, are currently, and others, are currently serving long prison sentences that include flogging. What are their demands? Free and equal quality education for all, and end to discrimination against religious and national minorities, the right to public education in the mother tongue in areas where national minorities such as Kurds and Arabs are the majority, 
the right to organize independent unions, the right to a living wage, the right to adequate health and other benefits. The most outstanding dimension of progressive struggles in Iran, however, is the struggle of women. During the past 40 years, the oppression promoted by the Islamic Republic has led to its dialectical opposite in the form of more women attending universities, representing 60% of university graduates, becoming more outspoken about their rights, writing novels, creating weblogs, websites, translating books about feminist ideas. The world witnessed the results of this heightened consciousness last year in the many individual acts of protest by women who removed their headscarves in public to oppose the Islamic Republic's compulsory hijab. While these women, known as the Girls of Revolution Avenue, were arrested, imprisoned, and released on bail, the regime gave the highest punishment to Nasrina Sotoudeh, a feminist human rights attorney who became their defense attorney. Last month, Sotoudeh was sentenced to 38 years in prison and 148 lashes for violating sacrosanct rules, promoting propaganda against the regime, and endangering national security. So today is not the only feminist political prisoner. Other well-known feminist political prisoners are Nargisa Muhammadi, a journalist sentenced to long prison term for opposing the death penalty, and Atena Daemi, journalist and children's rights activist. Another feminist writer, Golruch Irai, who had been imprisoned for writing a story against stoning, was just released on heavy bail after she was diagnosed with bone cancer. There's so many other women prisoners, including Kurdish feminist political prisoners, Zainab Jalalian, women's student activists, Baha'is and Sufis, the British-Iranian journalist Nazanine Zaghay Ratcliffe, and women who are not well known but are in prison for fighting abusive husbands or being punished for their husband's unpaid debts. There are also male feminist political prisoners, such as Arasha Sadeghi and Farhadeh Meisami. Another important struggle in Iran is that of the students whose demands for changing the system of education and whose increasing unemployment has made them very dangerous to the, to the regime. While the percentage of students' interest in socialism is not nearly as, as it was against the Shah, in the beginning of the 1979 Iranian Revolution, students, of whom 60% are women, have been the main audience for the many translations of books about independent Marxism and feminism that have been translated during the past 20 years. Indeed, the current wave of arrests of leftist students is directly related to their efforts to establish connections with labor and women's struggles throughout Iran. In this effort, the student journal GAM has been exemplary. Its founding editors, Sanaz Alakhyari, a woman, and Amir Hossein Mohammed Fard, have been imprisoned in Ahwaz since Ahwaz, which is also part of in the Khuzestan province, since January for quote endangering national security, unquote. Little has been heard from them. Students and intellectuals also include environmental activists who have been strongly under attack. Currently, eight environmental activists have been charged with espionage and face the death penalty. Last but not least, in the list of progressive forces are oppressed national minorities such as Kurds and Arabs. 
most of whom do not advocate separation, but demand a federalist system with a more equitable distribution of resources and with their mother tongue as the language of instruction and administration. Currently, over 1,000 Arab civil rights, human rights, and media activists in Khuzestan province are under arrest for protesting against discrimination. 22 were executed in November without any trial. Four young Kurdish political prisoners were executed last September. More are in prison. Clearly, there is no lack of progressive forces and no shortage of revolutionary potential in Iran. Given the fact that in December 2017, the masses of the working class protested, rejected the reformists, and demanded the overthrow of the Islamic Republic and an end to its military interventions in the region, what is holding back the movement from going in a revolutionary direction? This leads us to the question of the complexities of the struggle in Iran. And that's number two. What are the complexities that need to be recognized and analyzed? In Iran, we have a theocracy that is also a militarized state capitalist regime. Despite their disagreements, the government of Rouhani and Zarif, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and the Supreme, Court, a Supreme Leader are essentially united. This regime has overreached and bankrupted itself with its earlier nuclear program and its current military interventions in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and Yemen. Despite the severe impact of the current US sanctions on its ability to export oil and maintain trade, it hopes that its reliance on China and Russia would allow it to pull itself out of the current crisis. The Iranian left despite its advances during the past 20 years and its exposure to concepts of socialism and Marxism that challenge statism, is still, unfortunately, mostly espousing a view of socialism that is statist, nationalist, and male chauvinist. Thus, most Iranian socialists urge the labor strikes to limit their goals to officially putting factories back under the control of the state. They have been mostly quiet or openly approving of Iran's military interventions in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and Yemen. They have not seriously addressed the issues of sexuality, relations within the family, sexual abuse. They also mostly equate the demands of oppressed national minorities for self-determination with separatism. In the absence of an Iranian socialist vision and organizing that would help develop all the revolutionary potential in the labor, feminist, and national minority struggles, the arena has been left open for pro-US imperialist monarchists and other types of secular nationalists who promised to bring about an efficient and secular capitalism that would pull Iran's forces out of Syria, negotiate with the national minorities, and recognize some basic women's rights. What can be done to help move the struggle in a revolutionary direction? So the third section, and for this I'm only going to have a couple of minutes, but I can say more in the discussion if you like. Uh, what kind of solidarity is needed from socialists? Here, I, I would like to talk about two kinds of solidarity. First, we need to reach out to those Iranian socialists and Marxists 
who are trying to challenge statism, nationalism, and sexism, and have made some important efforts to move the discussions and debates in a different, among socialists in a different direction. And I can point to some of those in our discussion today. And second, we need um, to start campaigns in support of actual struggles and arrested labor feminists, environmentalists, and a national minority activists inside Iran. And these are some of the people that I mentioned in the earlier part of my presentation. The, the feminists, the, the, uh, the, um, the, the leaders of the teacher union, the sugarcane workers, and the Arab and Kurdish political prisoners. Um, currently, the Alliance of Middle Eastern Socialists is organizing a campaign in solidarity with feminist political prisoners in the Middle East, which will include Iranian feminists as well. If any of you would like to help with that, please contact me. And uh, toward the aim of having debates on real alternatives to capitalism, sexism, racism, and genuine international solidarity, a new transnational socialist humanist solidarity network has just been formed, which invites your participation. So I will stop for now in the interest of uh, being on time. And um, I, if you ha would like further details, I can, I can add those in the discussion. Thank you.